Illusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science infuse into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature hot hybrids, blue snarfing, and healing fat. First up, here's Arwen Cross and Julianne Popple. I'm Arwen Cross, and I've been reading about how Canadian biologists have spotted a hybrid of grizzly bears and polar bears in high latitudes in the Arctic. Jody Pongratz and Evan Richardson from the University of Alberta were on a field trip, and they spotted both grizzly bears and hybrids of polar bears and grizzly bears in the Arctic, which until 20 years ago was a very rare sight. But in recent years, they've become more common. Grizzly and polar bears separated into two separate lineages in evolution about four or five million years ago, and they've become ecologically different. Grizzlies have a more varied diet, they eat both plants and a variety of animals, whereas polar bears are pretty much specialists for eating seals. It seems likely that the reason that these new hybrids of grizzlies and polars have occurred is because grizzlies are moving north following their prey, but because of warmer climates, the sea ice is melting and leaving the grizzlies stranded at high latitudes, where some of them have been able to adapt to a polar bear's lifestyle, eating seals and mating with polar bears. But can this really give us a super arctic bear in the future? Ecologist Andrew Derrishere says that he thinks this is unlikely, because there are too few individuals of grizzly and polar bears who are actually breeding and exchanging their genes. He also says that hybrids tend to be poor sources of new species because they tend to be worse adapted to the conditions that they grow up in than either of their parents. As the climate warms, polar bears will probably move towards Greenland, which means they'll be further away from grizzly habitat. So these hybrids, while they're becoming more common at the moment with a warming climate, with further increases in warming, are less likely to occur. Wouldn't these hybrids have a wider diet than their polar bear um, parents because they'd be able to eat more things than just the seals. Yeah, I don't know whether that would be a matter of sort of the biology of your digestive system and, and what you're capable of breaking down or whether it's simply a matter of the environment that you're living in, what food is available and sort of your foraging capabilities. Um there has been some sequencing done of the, the DNA of, of polar bears and, and grizzlies recently that's helped contribute to knowing when they split in evolution, but how much uh, difference there is in their digestive tracts and what's just a, an ecological behavioural difference, I don't really know. I'm just wondering too whether these hybrids, are, well, how many are there? Do they know? Uh, they've been confirmed sightings of of something like five, so not many at all. Okay, and they're developing normally. There's no sign of like infant mortality or anything like that. 
Uh, not that I know of. And it would mm. also be interesting to find out whether they're fertile because like when a horse and a donkey mate and mm. you have the offspring as a mule, then um, a mule is not fertile and not able to produce offspring of its own. And it, it's, I guess, an interesting problem too from the point of view of, of how a species is defined and whether that uh, closeness is to do with the ability to breed together or um, or the choice to breed together given given normal conditions. So, you know, if you're a, a bird that used to spread across the whole of Australia and you've been separated by desert so that you've got a South Australian population and an East Coast population, are you really a separate species? And I guess in the case of the polar bears and the grizzly bears, they're normally separated and don't don't breed, but it's obviously not impossible from the sort of lock and key principle for them to do that if they are interacting. So when the geography changes, they might not be different species anymore. Mm. Interesting. So if a donkey and a horse make a mule and a lion and a tiger make a liger, what does a grizzly bear and a polar bear make? (laughs) A growler bear? I'm claiming that if no one else has. Next up, Derek Moore. Experiments are how we test theories and further the progress of science. Experiments are how we test theories and further the progress of science. Experiments are how we test theories and further the progress of science. Progressive science. There are many theories to compare. Ooh, experiments help us find the best one. The best one. There are many theories to compare. Ooh, experiments help us find the best one. Soothing healing fat. Associate Professor Ben Herbert from Macquarie University is co-founder of Regenius, a company that's pioneering a treatment for osteoarthritis that uses a patient's own fat. Fat is removed from your abdomen in a traditional liposuction sort of way and put through an ultrasonic extraction process called adipose-derived stromal vascular fraction. To create a mixture of mensochymal stem cells, progenitor and other regenerating cells and growth factors. This extract is injected into your arthritic joints and also into your bloodstream. The stem cells then find the injury and start healing. Stem cells can become almost any kind of cell, depending on their environment. They promise so much they become quite controversial, with shonky clinics in some countries claiming miracle cures. They've also been controversial because the most potent stem cells have come from embryos, which some people object to for ethical reasons and some for religious reasons. Stem cells from your own fat are plentiful, but it remains to be proved if they're as effective as embryonic stem cells. The first alternative to embryonic stem cells was from bone marrow. There are a thousand times more stem cells in your fat than in your bone marrow, and they're much less painful to extract. Patients are warned that adipose stem cell therapy is a treatment, not a cure, for osteoarthritis. Clinical trials are still being conducted. The current cost of therapy is over $9,000, which is not covered by Medicare or health insurance because the procedure is too new. 
The clinics advise that in Australia you can claim a tax refund of 20% of the cost, which is a refund of $1,800 for a payment of $9,000. Reginius has partnered with Macquarie Stem Cells and separately with Sydney Sports Medicine to offer the treatment in clinics. So if you're suffering and have some extra cash for just over $9,000, you can try the latest high-tech treatment for osteoarthritis while the rest of us wait for the clinical trials to finish and for Medicare or health insurance companies to help with the bill. Just wondering, who is actually going to be able to afford such a treatment? And do you know if they're charging people to participate in the clinical trial or whether they're expecting that to be the cost once the trial is over? Good question. I'm not sure. I know that the clinical trials are being conducted and I know that Macquarie Stem Cell Research have consent forms on their site for media, but I don't know whether the conditions for the clinical trials require you to pay or not. That wasn't clear on the website when I looked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that I, for one, wouldn't want to sign up for a treatment unless I had some kind of evidence that it had worked on other people suffering from the same condition in the past. But... Particularly when the price is so high. Well, this is the thing. I went through all the scientific papers I could find online, and it turns out there's quite a few, and they do list them on the website as well, which helps. But it seemed that most of the work has been done in animals. Mm -hmm. So in the animal model, and particularly in horses who get a lot of osteoarthritis in their joints, 80% effectiveness in horses. So humans, at first I had trouble trying to find papers referring to humans at all, And then they were just how promising it was. So it was very hard to get a feeling of just how effective it is. I suspect that, you know, this is all quite worthwhile, but it's so expensive. It's going to be out of the reach of an awful lot of people until they get sufficient clinical trials to convince the government or health insurance companies that they should cover it. Yeah, because certainly um, a lot of cancer treatment costs are in the order of, of several thousand dollars. And, and the reason that we can save people's lives is because the government is, is willing to subsidise that. So I guess if people are suffering and the, the treatment is proven, then uh, that would certainly be the way it would need to go to, to be usable. Well, I, I went, as I researched the story, I basically went from one extreme to the other. I started out being really sceptical. Because there's all these shonky offshore sort of sites that claim to do the miracles, and it sounded like it was one of those. And it sounded too good to be true. And all the research papers talked about horses and not humans, and there didn't seem to be a lot of clinical trials. And it took me a while to realise that there are clinical trials going on right now. Macquarie University Hospital is where at least one of the clinics does its work, so it's with the equipment there. And, of course, um, Associate Professor... Ben Herbert is from Macquarie University now, formerly of UTS. They have their um, people speaking who've had the treatment, but of course that's anecdotal evidence. The clinical trials is what we need. I think that the case for it is that if you're suffering really badly right now, then you don't want to wait however long it's going to take for the clinical trials to prove it work. It's been proved to be safe, which is why it's allowed to happen at all. Um, effectiveness, you might be willing to take a punt if your current medication's not working. And the process of removing the fat has been used for 20 years or more. It's the standard liposuction method. 
it's just the extraction of the stem cells that's new and simply injecting that mixture into both the bloodstream and into the joints. And do those stem cells have to undergo a process? Like I know if you wanted to, say, clone Dolly the sheep from, you know, mammary cells, you have to reset those cells so that they, you know, their DNA has all the the basic stem cell markings rather than the adult markings because there's sort of, there's, there's the stem cells that can... Um, can go into any kind of cell and then there's... The totipotent ones. Sorry, I love that word. Yeah. Totipotent, yeah. So there's the totipotents, yeah, that can be anything and there's the pluripotents that can only be a subset of cells. So if these fat stem cells, I'm wondering whether they can only become other types of fat cell um, being sort of pluripotent or whether the scientists can sort of extract them and then treat them in some way to bring them back to uh, a more totipotent level where they can become a a wider range of cell types? Well, the claim is that they're mensochymal stem cells, which means that they're as totipotent as bone marrow stem cells, which means that they can become quite a few different types of cells. So possibly not everything, like embryonic stem cells can become anything given the right growth factors in the right environment in your body. Uh, I believe bone marrow ones can't become absolutely anything, they can become neurons, they can become skin, they become bone and blood, but I think there's a limited number of things. And I think these fat cells are very much like the bone marrow ones. Mm-hmm. So they should be able to become cartilage, which is the main thing in osteoarthritis that's gone wrong, and they can become bone. Uh, wh- how well they'll be used for other things. They're talking about using them for nerve regeneration and other things in the future or in, experimentally. But that might require more steps than, than where it's at at the moment. Yeah. Well, they're not doing anything special. They're basically, they've got an extraction process based on ultrasound and they're just separating them out. And then they're relying on the environment of the joint pretty much. And the fact that injecting it into your bloodstream doubles the efficiency of it seems almost counterintuitive. But that's what they've found, they say. Yeah, I've been reading a, a very good book uh, lately called The Art of Genes by Enrico Cohen, who I believe is at Cambridge. And he's talking about how, you know, in development, how can you get from being a single cell up to being a whole organism with with all these different um, parts that are expressing different genes and so on. And uh, there is quite a lot of sort of local signaling uh, involved in cells deciding what type of cell they should become. So depending on what your neighbours are doing, um, if you're a stem cell, your neighbours could tell you to become a grown-up cell of their their type. So that must be the, the sort of thing that's going on. And that's uh, the kind of thing that happens when um, newts grow a new arm. If you, if you cut off their arm and they grow a new one, they're sort of responding to, I'm a, a stump on the end of an arm therefore I should grow into an arm because of my position and what my neighbours are telling me. Exactly, exactly. So they're not doing anything special to the stem cells other than separating them out of the fat. And so they're expecting the stem cells to just react to the signals on site. But they're also expecting the ones in the bloodstream to go towards the injury. So I don't know how that part of it works. And I don't know if that's well explained. It's mm-hmm. possible that, that they've just realised that works and they don't know why. 
yeah, I guess as long as it works, that's what counts for the patient. Exactly, and especially if you've invested that much. And of course, the other thing is, how long does it last? If it's a treatment and not a cure, that means at some point it might wear out and you might need to spend the money again. It'd be nice to know how long between treatments you can go. I guess those are all the kinds of questions that these clinical trials are hopefully going to answer. Well, exactly right. At the risk of asking a stupid question after hearing all this lovely discussion, uh, is osteoarthritis the one disease or is it sort of several diseases branded under the one banner of arthritis? Do you know? My understanding is it's an inflammatory disease, Mm -hmm. usually caused by self-immune reactions. But there may be other things going on that I I don't know if there's other causes. I mean, I think there are lots of causes of inflammation in the body and it may not always be autoimmune. So that's my knowledge is that um, there can be injuries that can cause it. So one of the clinics is a sports medicine clinic. And so I think they would get a lot of athletes who've damaged various joints who aren't that elderly at all, whereas other people it might be a genetic thing from autoimmune disease, Um, which seems to come along as as one of the things that ageing more generally causes as well. You get a a lot of more elderly people with osteoarthritis from autoimmune causes. Hello! Hello! We are They Might Be Giants. And science is real. From anatomy to geology. Science is real. From astrophysics to biology. A scientific theory isn't just a hunch or guess. It's more like a question. It's been put Brisbane Blue Snuffing. The Brisbane Times reports that Brisbane City Council has installed devices to connect with any Bluetooth-enabled device owned by motorists driving Brisbane roads without their knowledge or consent. The council felt no need to consult the Privacy Commissioner in its need to track traffic congestion. Bluetooth radio signals have a range of about 10 metres. If someone connects to your phone without your consent to send messages or files, that's bluejacking. When they go for unauthorised access to information on your phone, it's called blue snarfing. Brisbane Council intend to blue snarf the Bluetooth ID of every device in range in an effort to track the cars to model traffic congestion. They expect to get an ID for almost every car. The Council protests that the Bluetooth ID doesn't count as private information because it can't be tracked back through sales to identify the drivers who own the phones. However, the whole point of the exercise is to associate Bluetooth ID numbers with specific cars. And in order to track the cars by the mobile devices inside them, they're necessarily tracking the people who carry the phones. It's not too big a step to link up the Bluetooth ID with a car's number plate and the identity of the driver with closed-circuit TV images. The trial began in 2010 on the Clem 7 Highway and the Go-Between Bridge, 
The Congestion Reduction Unit project will see 218 monitoring sites, worth $4,000 each, installed and operational across Brisbane City by December 2012, to better model the city's traffic flow, at a total cost of $3.6 million. The devices will connect to any phone or other device that has Bluetooth enabled automatically. The way to avoid having your phone or camera connect to the council's devices and give up your personal data is to drive with Bluetooth disabled in all the gadgets within the car. Many people use Bluetooth to connect a music playing device to their car or to make phone calls or make video logs of traffic incidents. Drivers shouldn't be taking or making calls while they're driving, but the phone and music players of passengers will still be connecting to Brisbane Council's device and reporting their ID to be tracked. The Queensland State Government was also planning to roll out a further 400 sites all over southeast Queensland. It seems likely that other states will be watching. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SCR.com. Brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Into Sydney on 2SER. And over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. So, Ian, I know you're a bit of a fan of the old carnivorous plants, and so I thought you'd be really excited to hear about this new species that's been discovered by a team of German, or described by a team of German scientists. This species is called Drosera glandulagera, and it's a type of sundew plant, but unlike your classic sundews where they've got sticky pads where the insects get stuck, and then the plant slowly digests it with the enzymes and chemicals. These ones have special leaves called snap tentacles. And what these do is effectively catapult the insect from the outside of the plant into the dead centre, where then it gets stuck and then slowly digested in the classic sundew fashion. So this catapult mechanism, they don't know exactly how it works, but they think it's similar, something kind of similar to Venus flytraps. And it's so fast that it happens within 400 milliseconds from the insect landing on the snap tentacle to getting flung dead centre into the middle of the plant. Have you heard about this plant yet? I have. I saw a documentary on this two years ago and I've seen the, the recent stuff online. I think we should probably try and embed a video on the website if we can. It's quite amazing, isn't it? It's one of those ones that... Um, it's so cool that everyone should should own one who's possibly even vaguely interested because it moves so fast. Absolutely. The videos are amazing. So I will add them um, to our blog. So anyone interested in seeing those videos should check them out, check them out on our blog. And the paper itself is actually available because it's published on the Public Library of Science One journal. And um, there, there's links to all the videos there as well. Yeah. And if you watch the video, you can see... Not only is there the snap tentacles on the outside that catapult it in as soon as the fly or whatever little insect gets onto the tentacle, it just detects it and zaps it, sort of flings it straight into the centre. But then the little tendrils in the centre don't just sit there and wait for it. They actually then move. You can watch them moving like little fingers to put it right to the centre where most of the digestive sort of little tendrils are. It's quite impressive to watch. You can see other sundews move. Uh, I grow them at home and some of them 
none of them that I have move that fast. But some of them you can very slowly see that the they've closed over the insect and it's going to get digested. Uh, so, yeah, speed here is interesting, and it's an Australian native. That's true. Tasmania, I believe it's from. Yes, so it should probably be easy to grow in the rest of the country, and uh, we'll see if they're made available. Yeah, but this, the, you're right, the speed is amazing, and it's just like this alien creature rather than, you know, you, what you classically think of a photosynthesizing plant. And it's the season at the moment. It's spring has come on in Australia and all the carnivorous plants, particularly the sundews normally go into hibernation over winter and they're all coming out out of their shells now and uh, enjoying the sun. Spring has sprung and it's time for the flies to be flung into the sundew plant. And that was Devo with Whippet. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of sciences found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. If you're not in Sydney, then perhaps you could record a story and email it to us. You can send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. And tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Arwen Cross and Julianne Popple. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Yeah. <laughs>